Well, good morning. You can open your Bibles if you want. Genesis chapter 32 is where we're going to be. You know, one of the most popular themes in film or in music or in literature is the theme of returning home after a long absence. Returning home after a long absence. That's a popular theme in song and in film and in literature. You think about songs. If you were raised in the 1980s, you might think of Bruce Springsteen, the boss, in his classic song, Coming Home. Or My Hometown. I'm sorry, Bruce Springsteen. In in the 80s, My Hometown. It's a brilliant song. If you were raised in the 2000s, you might think of Skylar Gray's Coming Home. Another fantastic song about coming home after a long Absence. You go to f- film, one of the more recent ones is 2014's uh, Robert Downey Jr., Robert Duvall, maybe the greatest actor of all time, can we say that about Robert Duvall? Robert Downey Jr., Robert Duvall, and Billy Bob Thornton, uh, their, sh- their movie called The Judge, which chronicles Downey's character, who's a lawyer, he returns home in order to bury his mother, and as he's returning home, he has to wrestle with all of his past including the fractured relationship he has with his brother and his dad. It's a great movie. I'm not recommending it because there's quite a bit of language in it. Um, and remember, I, I don't have an email to give away anymore. It's Garrett at Trail. If you watch the movie and you don't like it, you think, oh, that's a terrible recommendation. Garrett at Trail is where you want to go with that. You go to literature. You think about literature. And, of course, the best piece of writing on the theme of returning home after a long absence is the story of the prodigal son. Everybody knows that. Both secular historians and Christian historians will tell you the finest piece of literature on returning home after a long absence is the story of the prodigal son. And all of the anxiety and fear that he's filled with as he's making his journey back home. The theme of having to wrestle with your past as you're returning home It's an incredibly popular one, and it's an incredibly powerful one, because many of us can relate to it. Many of us have had to wrestle with our past as we're returning to a specific location. We've had to wrestle with our past as we're trying to live in reconciled relationships in the present. Let me ask you, is that true of you? Have you had to wrestle with your past? Yeah? Yeah, that's certainly true. And it's this idea of wrestling, uh, it's this idea of both wrestling with our past and wrestling with the Lord himself that we're going to see in Genesis chapter uh, 32 this morning. So again, where we're going to be is Genesis chapter 32. And you know, if you've been with us, we've been tracing uh, these past seven weeks, we've been tracing the life of Jacob uh, over these past seven, eight weeks now. And let me remind you, a little bit of what we've seen because it'll help make sense of the text that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Jacob, who's, again, his name means deceiver, liar, grasper. Not really a great name if you're naming children, but a lot of people do. But that's his name. It means liar, grasper, deceiver. After stealing the firstborn blessing uh, from his older brother Esau, he's forced to travel for his own protection. He's forced to travel 550 miles up to Haran, because his older brother Esau has vowed to kill him. And so he begins to make his way up to Haran, and just as he's about to leave the promised land, he's all alone, he's penniless, he's uh, friendless, he's defenseless, and he's making his way, he's all alone, and the Lord appears to him in a dream. He has this dream where the angels of God appear to him. And then the Lord himself appears to him and reaffirms the Abrahamic covenant to him and says, I'm going to be with you. No matter where you go, No matter what you do, I'm going to be with you. And then he makes him this promise. And I'm going to bring you back to this land. So he's leaving. He sees the angels of God. He leaves, but he knows there's been the promise given to him by the Lord that he's going to come back to this land. That's a wonderfully reassuring promise. And so you know, if you've been with us, he travels up to Haran. And the first thing he sees is he sees Rachel. And when he sees Rachel, he likes what he sees. He falls immediately in love with her. But right after meeting Rachel, he meets uh, Laban, who is Rachel's dad. And Laban um, is the Lord's means of discipline 
in Jacob's life because he's just like Jacob. He's a liar. He's a manipulator. He's a deceiver, only he's better at it than Jacob. And what it does in Jacob's life is it shows to Jacob how ugly his sin actually is. And it actually is the Lord's means of discipline in Jacob's life. And Jacob, he agrees to work for him for seven years um, to work for Rachel. And so he works for the seven years. And then as as the honeymoon is beginning, it's a week-long festival, Laban gets Jacob incredibly drunk. Great, great father-in-law move. Gets his future son-in-law incredibly drunk. And instead of giving to him Rachel, he gives to him Leah. So he deceives him. He tricks him right there. And so Jacob, ticked off, agrees to work for another seven years for, um, for Rachel. And so he does. And so for 14 years, he, he works first for Leah and then for Rachel. And it's through those 14 years and those two wives and their two maidservants that Jacob's family is built, 11 sons and one daughter over 14 years. is the, the family of Jacob is being built. And then last time that we were in Genesis together, we saw how Jacob outfoxed Laban. How he manipulated the breeding of the flocks, of Laban's and his own flocks. And he, he caused his flocks to become stronger and stronger and produce greater and greater. And he caused Laban's flocks to become weaker and weaker. And so he became, Jacob became, and his family became increasingly wealthy. And Laban and his family, his sons, became incredibly hostile. And they were growing incredibly jealous of Jacob. And the Lord uses that tension in Jacob's life to shift his eyes off of his flourishing business and onto the promised land. The Lord uses the tension in his life to cause him to shift his focus. By the way, did you know the Lord will use the tension in your life to move you in a new direction? He will. He will oftentimes do that. Oftentimes the Lord will use the outside circumstances of our lives, growing tensions, uh, frustrations, hostilities to shift our focus off of what we're currently doing and to move us into a new direction. He will do that oftentimes. And we need it because we tend to get stuck in a rut. We tend to grow stagnant. And the Lord will bring allow tension into our lives in order to move us into a new direction. Oftentimes, that's how he did it to bring you into a relationship with him. Is that not true? Great tension in your life, great frustration, great hostility. Maybe something was going on. You had a, a focus that you were going, and he says, oh, no, I'm going to allow this tension and this frustration, this hostility in your life. It's going to shift your focus off of this thing and onto me. And that's exactly what he does with Jacob. He allows this tension from Laban and his family so that his thoughts would start returning to the promised land. And so what happens is, while Laban and his crew are out shearing sheep, Jacob and his retinue, they pack everything up they can, and they flee. They take off trying to escape from Laban. And Laban hears about it, and his large crew, they overtake Jacob. And basically what happens, and i tell you more, but we're running out of time already. Um, what happens is they work out a truce. They build a boundary, and, and Laban says, you can't come back over this boundary. And Jacob says, fine, and you can't come over this boundary. And so they work out this little, this little um, agreement. These two nations, budding nations take place, this little peace agreement. You can't come over here. You can't come over here. And so finally now, after 20 years, Jacob is free. He rids himself of Laban. And he's poised now with his growing family to enter back into the promised land, back home, fulfilling the Lord's promise. And with that, we're going to jump into uh, Genesis chapter 32. And what we're going to see, uh, we're going to see this. In verses 1 through 21 of Genesis 32, um, Jacob wrestles with his past. That's in verses 1 through 21. Jacob wrestles with his past. Because returning home means he has to deal with his past. He has to come face to face with Esau, the brother who wants to kill him. So he's going to have to wrestle with his past. So that's in verses 1 through 21. And then in verses 22 through 32, Jacob wrestles with God. He wrestles with God. And his encounter with God is paradigmatic for how everyone has a real-life encounter with the Lord. When you read this account, you should think to yourself, how do I know if I've had a real encounter with the Lord? This text shows you. 
Because this is the means, this, this is the way that you can tell if I've actually had a real encounter with the Lord. It's how Jacob wrestles with the Lord. So, let's begin. Verse 1, uh, beginning in Genesis chapter 32. Here's what we read. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he named that place Maenaim. Um, so Jacob, he, he starts his journey back to Bethel, back to the promised land. And we read right off the get-go that the angels of God met him. Just like when he left the promised land, the angels of God met him and reassured him of the Lord's promise. So too here, when he's entering back into the, into the promised land, and he knows he's going to have to wrestle with, the, with his brother, he knows there's going to be great conflict, the Lord again, um, the, the angels of God again meet him, assuring him that the Lord's presence is going to go with him. That's what it's saying there. And then, and when Jacob sees the angels of God, he calls the place Maenaim, um, meaning God's camp. And if you note in the, if you notice in the foot, footnote there, it can mean two camps. Maenaim can mean, it can either mean God's camp or two camps, like Jacob's camp, his large group, and then the angels, God's camp. By the way, this is where TCF borrowed this term for our kids' camp. We called it we call it Camp Mahanim. Um, the actual way to say it is Mayanam. I don't know why we called it Mahanim if we just didn't know how to pronounce it at the time. Whatever the case, um, we call it Mahanim, uh, God's camp. Um, or if you want to go with two camps, you could say it's two camps: the boys' camp over here and the girls' camp far away. From the boys' camp. Whatever way you want to do it. But this is where it comes from. This idea. Um, camp Mahanim. By the way, Camp Mahanim is coming up. July 27th through the 30th. Some of you right now are tired of the snow. I promise you, in July 27th through the 30th, there will not be snow. And it's a great opportunity for you to be outside with young, young kids who need to know about Christ. It's up at Mountain Lakes Bible Camp. And, uh, there's a lot of ways you can help with camp if you want to help with camp. Contact Debbie, um, Debbie Conley over the children's ministry, bossladyattrail.org. That'll get you Debbie all the time. Or just call the church office. But there's lots of ways that you can help with Camp Mahani. So, Jacob, as he gets to the promised land, the angels of God meet him there. And now in verses 3 through 8, we're going to see how Jacob plans to meet Esau. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. Um, so over these 20 years, Esau has already shown his military might, by the way. He's driven out the Horites, and he's taken over the land. It's the Edomites at this point. And, he know, and Jacob no doubt knows about his brother's military might. He has heard that his brother has driven out the Horites. He's living in this land. So he sends his messengers up to his brother, taking this news, verse 4, instructing them, thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, uh, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. So he tells his messengers exactly how to address Esau. He says, hey, go tell him that I've been with Uncle Laban this entire 20 years and that I'm quite wealthy. And I'm coming not to have a range war. I'm not coming here to have a war. I'm coming in hoping to gain favor in Esau's sight. And so they go and they proceed. They, they take the word to Esau and the word comes back to Jacob. And it's not good. Look at verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him. That is not good. 400 men was the standard size of a militia. So when he hears 400 men are coming with him, he's thinking to himself, well, I can't tell you what he's probably thinking to himself, but he's thinking, this is not good. This is not the news that I was hoping to hear from Esau and from his camp. 400 men are coming. To, he's thinking, I'm going to be a dead man. They're coming to wipe me out. And immediately he's filled with anxiety. Like, 
he, he just instantly he's thinking I'm a dead man. But he continues to plan. Because if there's one thing Jacob's good at, it's making a plan. And so he continues to plan. Look at verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp that is left will escape. Uh, He knows he can't go back to Haran because Laban's there, and he's already made a truce agreement with him. And so he divides his camps into two, thinking if Esau attacks the one, well, then maybe the other one will be able to escape. Maybe. So he continues to plan, and then he prays. He plans and then he prays. And what you have in verses 9 through 12, you have the first recorded prayer of Jacob. And it's the longest prayer, by the way, in the book of Genesis. And in a lot of ways, it's a model prayer. You could do a lot worse than modeling your prayers after this one. Look at how he prays. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the, uh, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan. And now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Okay, now look at how Jacob prays here. Um, Again, you could do a lot worse than this prayer. He addresses God. First of all, there's an invocation. He addresses God with reverence. In fact, he addresses God as with the same language that how God disclosed himself to Jacob back in Genesis chapter 28, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. So he addresses God with reverence. And then he recognizes and he confesses his unworthiness before God. He says in verse 10, he says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of your steadfast love and faithfulness. So he recognizes and he confesses his unworthiness before God. He adopts a posture of humility before the Lord. And then he makes a petition before God. He says in verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. That's a petition. He's making a petition. And the Lord will save Jacob, but not in the way, but in in the most unexpected way. And by the way, when you're petitioning the Lord, when you're coming to the Lord in prayer, petitioning him, you need to leave room for the Lord to work in your circumstances in a way that's unexpected, in a way that you couldn't fathom in the, in, the, in the present situation. And that's what Jacob does. He petitions the Lord, and then lastly, he gives reason for his confidence. Well, what's the reason for his confidence? He appeals to the Lord's covenant faithfulness. He says, Lord, you have said. You have said these things. And then he rehearses, he, uh, rehearses the Abrahamic covenant. He bases his appeal... He bases his confidence, he bases his future on the Lord's promise. And he says, Lord, please show yourself faithful once again. That's a great, that's a great prayer. So Jacob prays, he comes to the Lord with reverence and humility, with petition, uh, and appealing to the Lord's covenant, covenant faithfulness. Again, that's a great way to pray. And after he prays, he goes right back to planning. He prays. And then he goes right back to planning to how he's going to make, how he's going to meet Esau. He takes the right action in praying, and then he takes the very practical action in preparation to meet Esau. Um, reminds me of the quote by Oliver Cromwell, where he says, trust God, but keep your powder dry. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's trusting God, he's praying to God, but he's also keeping his powder dry. And that's what Jacob's doing. He's trusting the Lord. He's petitioning him in prayer. And now, verses 13 through 21, Jacob prepares to make restitution to Esau. He's how He he planned how he's going to meet him. He prays. Now he's planning to make restitution to Esau. Look at verse 13. So he stayed there that night 
And from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 milking camels and their calves. 40 cows and 10 bulls. 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, comes to you and asks, To whom do these belong? Or to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. And they are a present sent to my lord Esau. And moreover, Jacob's coming behind us. And likewise, and he, he likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind him. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterwards, I shall see his faith. Perhaps, perhaps, he will accept me. So, so, uh, the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. Well, what is this about? Here's what it's about. He knows he's wronged Esau. He knows he's wrong. He's completely wronged him. He has stolen the firstborn blessing. And so as he re-enters the land and hopes to be reconciled to Esau, he sends forth these animals as restitution. He knows he's wronged him, and so he's trying to make restitution. He knows he's wronged his brother. So as he wrestles with his past, he prepares to make restitution to Esau. And by the way, one of the ways, an indicator that the Lord is actually working in your life is when you look over your past and you recognize that you've, especially as an adult, you look over your past and you recognize where you've wronged other people, the Lord brings up areas that you've wronged another person, that you go to that person and you try to make it right. That's actually a sign of growing spiritual maturity. When you look at your past as an adult, and you know you've wronged a brother in a certain way, and the Lord brings it up to you and says, you've really you wronged that person. One of the signs of maturity is you go to that person and you try to make it right. I know it's not always possible. For various reasons, people pass away, people move away. But if at all possible, you seek to make a way. And that's what Jacob's doing here. He knows he's wronged Esau. He knows the firstborn blessing should have gone to him. And so he's trying to confer the firstborn blessing back to Esau. And so he selects hundreds of animals. Did you guys add up how many animals those were? 550 Animals, goats, sheep, camels, cattle, and donkey, 550 in all into these three companies. And of the goats and the sheep and the cattle, he took special care to make sure that he wasn't just providing female animals, but he was also providing enough males for breeding stock. And he tells us, guys, go. Separate these guys into three herds. And when you meet Esau, tell him these words. These are from Jacob. They're a present for my Lord. And Jacob's coming behind him. He, this is all about making restitution and to hopefully appease uh, Esau's anger. And so he sends, he sends forth these large herds of animals and then he waits. He sends them forth and he just waits. And there's nothing we dislike more than waiting. Is that true? When you're waiting on a word about something, and you're filled with anxiety, and you're thinking, oh, this is torture. That's what Jacob's feeling. He is waiting on word of what Esau's going to say. He's still wrestling with his past. And what you begin to see, what you start to see in verse 22, is as he's waiting, he begins to wrestle with the Lord. Or to put it more precisely, the Lord actually begins to wrestle with him. Because the Lord initiates it. Jacob doesn't initiate it. The Lord actually initiates this wrestling match. Look at verse 22. That same night, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream 
and everything else that he had. So he sends his, his family across the stream in order to protect them. And then once, once they get settled in, he goes back across the stream, back across the river, and he's all alone. And he's just waiting. And while he's all alone, the Lord begins to grapple with him. Look at verse 24. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled him. Now remember, it's nighttime. A man comes up and starts wrestling with him until the breaking of the day. So they start wrestling in the middle of the night and they wrestle all the way through until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay, let's ask a couple of questions here. First of all, is this a dream or is this a real physical wrestling match? Well, it's not a dream. It's a real wrestling match, which means it's not the WWF or not any of the buffoonery that we see in America on the TV about wrestling. This is real. This is a real physical altercation. Jacob will walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And that's not uh, Walking with a limp is not the result of a dream. This is a real physical altercation. So it's, it's real. It's a real physical altercation. Second of all, who is this man who comes up? Because if I'm, if I'm Jacob, the very first thing I want to know is who just attacked me? Who just attacked me? Who grabbed me? Um, that's what I'm thinking if I'm Jacob. Um, I'm, he may be wondering, is this, did Esau send an assailant? Or is this Esau? Who's attacking me? Some Jewish commentators around the time of Jesus they thought that this was Esau's guardian angel who wrestled with Jacob in order to get Esau's blessing back. But that's kind of ridiculous. Um, but even today, um, some, some commentators today go as far as to say it was an angel. But maybe. But why did the angel have to leave at daybreak? I mean, he's not a vampire. Angels love the light. Why did he have to leave? I mean, maybe... Maybe there was choir practice starting and he had to leave. Uh, who knows? But the text, the text actually does give us some clues. First of all, did you notice in the last bit of verse 25, we read that uh, after wrestling with the man all night, this man simply touches Jacob's hip. Just simply touches it. And all of, all, the source of all of Jacob's strength was completely dislodged. Just the, the source of all of his lower body strength. And everybody knows this. Every athlete knows this. All your power is generated in your hips. No matter the sports you're playing, it's all generated in the hips. Hips are the source of strength. If you don't doubt it, just ask Shakira. Um, all the strength is if you... You only know that if you're younger than 40. Um, all your strength is, is generated in your hips. And this man puts his hip out of socket permanently. What must have Jacob been thinking? When this man does this, when he's been wrestling with this mysterious man all night, and all of a sudden, this mysterious man reaches out and goes, bippity poppity boo. And his hip is completely put out of joint. It's com- all of his strength is evaporated in that second. Immediately, he must have realized that this person is holding back. This guy that I've been wrestling with all night, all this time, has been holding back. Kind of like a dad... When you're wrestling with a small child. Dads, you know this feeling. When you're wrestling with a small child, you could crush your child. When they're a little, little thing, you could crush them. You could pin them in five seconds. But you hold back until they pop you in the face. <laughs> and then you think, I'm not holding back anymore. You're getting crushed right this moment. That's the feeling that Jacob, at that moment, this, what he realizes in that moment is this person has tremendous power. And he's been feigning weakness this entire time. There's this enormous power that's been held back. That's that, this enormous power that's being restrained. That's the first clue. Second clue is in verse 26. The man says, let me go for the day has broken. Let me go for the day has broken. The sun's coming up. You better let me go. 
You don't want to see me when the sun's up. And Jacob understands what that means. And you can see he does, if you look down at verse 30, you can see he understands. He understands this. No human being can look on the face of God in the full light of day and live. And he knows that. He knows that's the case. When this man said to Jacob, the sun's coming up, you better let me go. After he's just touched his hip and permanently put it out of the socket, Jacob knows immediately he's not just grappling with a man. He's not just wrestling with a man. He's grappling with God. And the Lord's not actually done with him. Look at verse 27. And he said to him, this man who's, who is wrestling with Jacob, the Lord said to him, what is your name? Does he not actually know his name? I mean, no, no, it's not that. It's not that he doesn't know his name. Um, it's in scripture. Remember, name identifies your whole character. Your name identifies your whole character. It, it tells us everything we need to know about you. And it identifies your character. And so when the Lord says, tell me your name, what he's doing is he's getting Jacob to confess his entire character. And Jacob, look at what he says. He says, uh, he said, my name's Jacob. So Jacob, in giving his name, is confessing his entire character. It's a confession of the whole character of his life. He's the grasper. He's the liar. He's the deceiver. He's the one who's manipulated everything his entire life. And so he gets this, the Lord gets this confession out of Jacob. And his confession leads to life transformation and a whole new identity. Look at verse 28. And then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. A whole new identity. The the confession of his character leads to life transformation and a whole new identity. He says, you're no longer going to be Jacob. Your name now is Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Hmm. It's changed from Jacob to Israel. And now he won't prevail through deception and trickery. Now Israel will prevail by depending upon the Lord. That's the idea. Verse 29. And then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he says, why, why is it that you've asked my name? And it's, it could be rendered, you already know my name. You've wrestled with me all night. You've seen what I've done to you. You know who I am. Why are you asking me my name? And there he blessed him. And if there were five words in the Bible that I wish somebody would write a huge book on, it's this right here. It's this mysterious, and there he blessed him. And a blessing was always verbal. Something happens right here after Jacob says, confesses his sin and says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. I'm clinging to you. I will not let go. I will hold on for dear life until you bless me. And the Lord says, and we read there, he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up upon him as he passed, Peniel, Limping because, limping because of his hip. He will walk with a limp for the rest of his life. He has been broken and yet completely restored. Broken but blessed is Jacob. That, by the way, that's the identity of every Christian. Broken but blessed. Let me ask you, does that resonate with you? You have been broken in wrestling with God. And yet completely blessed. We'll talk about what that, what that looks like more in a moment. Therefore, verse 32, therefore to this day the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket. Because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Okay, we'll stop there. What an interesting account, this wrestling with God. And as I said earlier, this becomes paradigmatic um, for knowing if you've actually had a real encounter with the Lord. In our world, a lot of people talk about wanting an encounter with the Lord. They want to have a spiritual encounter with the Lord. And, but they don't really have any idea what that looks like. This text tells us what, this, what it actually looks like to have a real encounter with the Lord. There's three marks here that are indicators if you've had a real, genuine encounter with the Lord. If you want to meet the Lord in a real way, these three things will always be there. Well, what are they? Here's the first one. 
You want to know if you've had a real encounter with the Lord? Ask yourself this. You, well, let me say it like this. You must meet him personally. If you're going to have a real encounter with the Lord, you must meet him personally. If you want to meet the real God, you must, you have to meet him personally. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, some people, let me say it like this. Some people are raised in a church. And they absolutely love the church. And they think it's the best church in the world. And yet when they move away to college or they move away for a career, they don't have any real interest in joining a church or being connected to the body of Christ. How do you explain that? Here's how. Their faith was cultural. It had never become personal. Their faith was church culture. It had never become personal. They had never met God themselves. Even though they had been plugged into a good, healthy church, their faith was cultural. And it was, emo- and it was emotional. They liked the church and some of the people in the church. And they liked the preaching and maybe some of the, the worship. They experienced God in a group. But they hadn't, they hadn't met him. They never experienced God personally. Now listen, that happens all the time. As a pastor, I'll tell you, that happens all the time. It's very possible, and it happens quite a bit, to be caught up in a good church, to be quite excited about what's happening in, in the church, and even involve yourself in what's happening in the church without ever personally meeting God. That happens all the time. Or you think about some politicians, both Republicans and Democrats, who are very happy to court the conservative vote. They're very happy to talk about conservative values. They're very happy to have their hand on the Bible when they're being sworn into office. And yet, later you find out that they've had multiple affairs on their wife while their wife's had cancer. You find out that they've been involved in prostitution rings. You find out that they're flat racists or they're engaged in some other hypocritical behavior. How do you explain that? Well, their faith was civil. It was civil religion. It never became personal. It never really invaded their private life. It didn't invade their personal space. It was civil religion. Or some people are raised in a Christian family. And that's a wonderful gift to be a part of a family that's raised in the church. But a lot of times people who are raised in a Christian family, they're overshadowed by faith, but they're never penetrated by faith. They're overshadowed by faith because of their family, but they've never actually been penetrated by faith. By faith. Dr. Martin Lord Jones, a great preacher from a previous generation um, in London, his sermon on this passage, he gave a great illustration. He was talking about one evening he had finished preaching, and a young man, 18 years old, came up to him and said, Hey, Dr. Jones, I'd like to, uh, I'd like to talk to you after service, if, if at all possible. And Lloyd-Jones had known this child. He dedicated him as a baby. He watched his family bring him to church every Sunday his entire life. He knew everything about this child. And so Dr. Jones says, yeah, let's go back to my office. And so they did. And when they got into the office, the young man said, "Um, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, we're the religious family in our neighborhood. And I'm the religious person in my school. I speak up for the faith whenever I have an opportunity. I defend in my faith. And I love this church. And I love your preaching. I think your preaching is very good. I, I take notes of your preaching because it helps me defend my faith to outsiders. But tonight, for the very first time in my entire life, I realize that all of this Christian faith stuff is personal. It's personal. And I couldn't go home until I tell you that, until I told you that. You know what Lord Jones said? He says, you know what happened? That night, for the first time in his entire life, he was actually meeting God for himself apart from his religious family. He was meeting God personally. His faith stopped being his family's faith, and it became his own faith. He had met God personally. Well, what does it mean to meet God personally? Because we hear that term thrown around all the time in the church. you got to meet God personally. Well, what the heck does that mean? Well, the text tells us. It tells us as Jacob was alone, God came. And invaded his space. He invaded his personal spells. God came and he started to bother the heck out of him. God came and wrestled with him all 
night long. What does meeting God personally look like? It looks just like that. When you come to God, when you see, God becomes personal to you. When you realize who he is and what he's done and what he said, and those realities start to invade your personal space. And those realities start to bother the heck out of you. And if you say they don't bother you, well, then you haven't taken the gospel seriously. I promise you. If you say the gospel doesn't bother me, the gospel realities don't bother me, you haven't taken the gospel seriously enough. Because to forgive somebody who's wronged you grievously, that is harder than heck. Is it not? To turn the other cheek, that's harder than hates. Uh, there are all sorts of gospel realities that are incredibly challenging. And if you say, no, I agree with everything in the Bible. Really? It doesn't bother you, some of the things that you read in the Bible? What that means is you haven't actually wrestled with God. You see, what it actually looks like to wrestle with God is he's going to invade your space. And he's going to bother you. And you're, he's going to start wrestling with you. And what it will do is it will start affecting how you live your day-to-day life. That's how you know you've met God personally. Is when his realities start invading your personal space and it starts to affect the way you live your day-to-day life. So you may have thought throughout your whole life that you had faith in God. But maybe it was cultural. Or maybe it was civil. Or maybe it was familial. But when it actually begins to invade and intrude on your personal daily living, and he begins to invade your personal daily space, your mind, your heart, he starts intruding there, he starts bothering you in those areas, and you have to wrestle with him, because what he has said, it challenges you, and you're wrestling with it, that's when you know you're dealing with him personally. Let me give you an example. Uh, years ago, there was a guy at TCF, loved TCF, very active in TCF, volunteered in, in different things around the church, uh, in, in different, on, around the edges at TCF. So he was very engaged in the church. Would say he loved the Lord. Would say he's committed to Christian doctrine. doctrine. But personally, he was sexting different women within the church. And one of those sexting situations came and landed on my desk. Well, what the heck do you do with that? The lady said, well, how do you explain this? You want to know how you explain it? You say it hasn't gotten personal to him yet. God hasn't begun to invade his personal space. Uh, He hasn't invaded his private life. You see, only when God begins to rest with you, and he begins to invade your personal, your, your private life and your personal space, then, only when that happens, then and only then do you know you've actually had a personal encounter with the Lord. When he's invading your space and you're saying, I'm wrestling with the Lord over this. And over the wrestling, I'm being changed by it. That's when you know you've met God personally. And in, in a lot of cases, a lot of people will come to church. They can, they can quote doctrine. They can give you the doctrine. And let me tell you something, the doctrine doesn't mean a flip if it doesn't actually produce life change. And that happens all the time. So let me ask you this, has the Lord gotten personal with you? Has the Lord gotten personal with you? Or do you just relate to God through the church? Through the church culture? Or through civil religion? Or through familial faith? You won't be changed, Christian, listen, You will not be changed unless you wrestle with God. And he wrestles with you personally. You have to let him invade your private space and say, Lord, wrestle with me. Bother me because I want to become like you. And I want to wrestle with this. I want to wrestle all of this out until it actually produces life change. So how how can you tell you got to meet God personally? Here's the second thing. You must be stripped. i got to move quicker. Secondly, you must be stripped of your self-sufficiency. How do you know you've had a real encounter with the Lord first? You have to meet God personally. Second, you must be stripped of your self-sufficiency. What is the, what the Lord does in his severe mercy is he strips Jacob of all of his self-sufficiency. And the Lord will do this to us. He will strip you of your self-sufficiency. The areas of your life that you've relied upon your own natural abilities 
or your own strength rather than the Lord. Those are the areas that we're, we, we say, well, we're self-sufficient in these areas. Well, what were those areas for Jacob? His planning. Jacob always had a plan. He was very crafty. And yet the Lord has gotten up close and personal with Jacob. And Jacob, at that moment, Jacob's planning has gone by the wayside. The great theologian, Iron Mike Tyson. <laughs> Mike Tyson used to say, uh, everybody's got a good plan until they get punched in the face. That's fair. I think that's fair. You ever been punched in the face? My brother hit me one time in the face. We were driving someplace. We got in a fight. I threw a punch at him. I missed. He turned around and hit me in the face. My plan went out the window in that moment. And the same thing happened to Jacob. All of his planning. Jacob was great at planning. Jacob's planning has gone by the way, uh, wayside. And his strength. Remember, Jacob was incre- this incredibly strong, vital, um, um, uh, strong, uh, vital guy. All of his strength has been dislodged. He can no longer rely upon his planning or his strength. And so the Lord, in his severe mercy, has stripped him of these things. And Jacob is left with simply clinging to the Lord. And that's what he does. He clings to the Lord and the Lord blesses you. He completely blesses him. Let me ask you this. In the Lord's severe mercy, has he stripped you of the things that you once relied upon? And because those things have been stripped away in your life, you're having to rely upon the Lord more and more in genuine faith. And what you found over the course of that time is that the Lord's completely faithful. Has that happened to you? I know that's happened to many of you. Um, see, one of the things that the Lord does in his severe mercy, we don't know Jesus is all we need until Jesus is all we have. And it is severe mercy. It's the severe mercy of the Lord. And it is severe because the process is painful. Nobody likes having things stripped away. That process is painful, much like wrestling is. So it is severe, but it is mercy. Because your faith in the Lord's goodness will become all the more real to you, enabling you to become the person you were created to be. So it's the severe mercy of the Lord. So how do you know if you've had a real encounter with the Lord? First, you must meet God personally. Second, You must be stripped of your self-sufficiency. And you will be. You will be stripped of your self-sufficiency at one point or another in the Christian life. It will happen. Here's the third thing. You will emerge a changed person. And if the change isn't there, you actually none of the other two things have happened yet. You will emerge a changed person. Because you can't wrestle with the Lord and remain unchanged. It doesn't happen. You don't wrestle with God himself, the God we sang about this morning. You don't wrestle with that, with that God, and remain unchanged. How can you tell if you've had a real encounter with the Lord? You emerged a changed person. You see in verse 29, it says, and there he blessed him. And there he blessed him. Do you know what that means? It must mean that the affirmation of God, the thing that Jacob has always been craving, He's all, all his life, he's been saying, I want the blessing, I want the blessing, I'll, I'll steal it, I'll deceive, I'll do whatever. The affirmation of God, the thing that he's always been craving and the thing that he's been deceiving people for, it's finally being given to him. Well, how can God do that? Are you guys still awake? I see some of your eyes are looking tired. How can God do that? I mean, think about it, because Jacob was a smuck. He was a worthless, worthless guy. You look at Jacob's life. I mean, some of the patriarchs, they had moments of brilliance, and then they had moments of failure. Jacob's life was just one moment of failure after another moment of failure after another moment of failure. So how can a holy God bless somebody that was such, such a schmuck? I had somebody ask me that this week. They called me and said, how could God actually bless this guy? Why would God choose to bless someone like Jacob? I mean, in in this moment of darkness, we saw God feigned weakness in order to give salvation to Jacob. He feigned weakness in order to give salvation to Jacob. But centuries later, in the darkness of Calvary, in Jesus, God actually became weak. And you know what happened to Jesus? 
the full weight of God's justice that Jacob deserved and that we deserved, it came down on Christ. And and Jesus, like Jacob, he held on. But he held on not just to get the blessing for himself like Jacob did. He held on to get the blessing for you. You see, Jacob held on at the risk of his life to get the blessing for himself. Jesus held on at the cost of his life to get the blessing for you. And when you wrestle with God, and when you see what what Christ has done for you, and when the full weight of that comes crashing down on you, you will emerge a changed person. And like Jacob, you'll emerge with a new identity. No longer one who strives against God, but who strives with God. You'll be broken like Jacob was, but completely blessed. You'll emerge actually rejoicing in your weakness because it brought you strength in the Lord. You'll emerge free to say, no, I am weak. No, I, there are areas I've blown it, and yet the Lord has blessed me. I don't need to strive for his blessing. I'm simply going to rest in it. It causes you, see, when you've been broken but blessed, it causes you to be both simultaneously humble, which we all need to be more humble. It causes you to be humble but bold because you're free to admit your weakness. But you'll become bold because you're free to rejoice that the Lord's goodness, his grace in Christ has been given to you. See, anybody who wrestles with the Lord, who meets him personally, who is stripped of their self-sufficiency, will emerge as a changed person. So let me ask you this in closing. Are you a new person? Has the Lord's grace in your life actually transformed your character? Because if you look over your life over the last 10, well, let's go five years. Over the last five years, is is your character more resembling the person of Christ today than it was five years ago? Ten years ago. Is your character today more resembling the person of Christ than it was ten years ago? You see, there's, that process should be at work in your life. If you're re- really wrestling with the Lord, and you're really allowing him to invade your private space, your private life, and you're actually being bothered by the teaching of Scripture, which you should be, it actually will produce life change in you. So, let me close. Let me pray. And then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, we all would acknowledge and agree that a wrestling match, any wrestling match is not fun, but a wrestling match with you is downright dangerous. It's downright dangerous if we don't hold on and cling to you. But if we hold on and cling to you and allow you to wrestle with us and allow you to invade our private life and transform us, then it gives way to new life and new birth. And Father, that's what we're after as your people. We want you to wrestle with us until we become and we, we emerge as people who better represent the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So please, Lord, um, do your work in us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.